Right, we are officially recording. As I always feel like I have to say now when we're doing Zoom calls. I always love it because my other co-host from my other show does that where it's like, okay, we're live. And this is like in big, bright red letters live. And then every time I'm like, yes, I can read. Thank you. <laughs> I just don't know how it shows up on the other side. It so shows like, up with a red dot that says recording. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm always the one who hits record. So I'm like, I, I don't know. It's always so funny. It's like, because y'all are probably hearing the audio only version. Every time Tori goes to press record, like she signposts aggressively, I'm hitting record. And it's like, yes, I can see the dot that says it's recording. I just, with, with my day job, when we do stuff, we have to like actively say it. Even though yeah, Texas like is a one party state, it's still like, I want you to know you're being recorded. So you don't yeah. come to court later and say, I did not know that you were recording everything I said when I was screaming at you. Oh my god, like when I was doing um I used to work in the I used to work in the audiovisual department of my college library, which probably is not a surprise to anyone. And I would do a lot of like recording lectures and stuff and just oh my god, hunting people down. With like, I need your consent. Just running around with like forms. It's like, wait please just sign this no one wants to get sued and there's always like one fucking kid in the back who's like never i'm fully gonna blast my alma mater because i feel like that neoliberalism that everyone hates about millennials was alive and fully well when i was at saint mary's and it's like i don't consent to being on camera good you're not because you're not the focus of this lecture it's like i don't consent to have my image displayed cool nosferatu it's not like you don't matter. We're not recording you. It's <laughs> sit in the back. No one will see you. It's fine. Or, or oh my god, when I was a, uh, there were a few times that my rhetoric professor invited me to like speak to some of her communication students, and I love it. It's great. Teach the children. And every time, because I do social media and everything, and it's like, oh my gosh, like I, I don't want my data being used this way. It's like cool. Drop off every social media platform throw your phone into the ocean and go live off the grid in the woods because you can say that you don't want your data being used in the way that it's being used but you're willingly giving it up when you're on snapchat and instagram and twitter and tiktok like what you're saying is not equating to what you're doing so now you're just bitching <laughs> now you're just whinging about it and it's annoying because you're trying to make I've been like power watching Killing Eve and there was this whole plot point in the second season where this guy who had basically a version of Facebook was just taking everyone's personal information and weaponizing it for individual countries. Mm -hmm. And like he goes through this whole thing talking about this guy's, he goes, oh, and you're really into this and this and you love it when your wife does this. And also she's thought about killing you about three times, but she's always backed off at the last minute. And the guy, you can just see him like, shrinking down and it's this like big russian mafioso kind of guy and i'm sitting mm -hmm. there going yeah i mean like i'm that person who in my messenger chats is always like addressing my fbi agent directly oh yeah like i'm constantly when i'm on skype like hello fbi agent who i know is watching me also in discord a lot i find that i'm saying that i'm not a serial killer because i'm usually the first person to be like no, that's not how you do that I was uh, talking about a very specific method of murder, which I won't go into just so people don't use it. Very in ingenious.
but then I was immediately like, hey, Fox, I'm just watching Killing Eve. Don't get excited. Because my friend and I have named our the FBI agent that watches us Fox, like Fox Mulder, because we're those dorks. Um, but yeah, that's where that goes. So, uh, are we going to do an episode now? Yeah, talking about okay. the uh, destruction of our privacy and single selves. Let's go into <laughs> this week's show, The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, who I have yeah. to intentionally not call Octavia Spencer, and I apologize in advance. I think in my head, I've called her Octavia Spencer at least five times. But in all fairness, both equally badass women, so. Yes, absolutely. All right. Um, we haven't, we need to start the show, I think, in a certain way. Uh, outside of the book, how are you? I'm okay. Um, okay. I'm functional. Um, okay, I'll take that. Not that anybody really cares, but, you know, it's it's kind of a big thing through our, um, multiple podcasts talking about mental health i am on additional medication now so basically all that has done is killed my give a fuck so um here we are how are you you know what i'm also pretty much there uh i think i described my mental status as being like the this is fine dog yeah or like the house is on fire but like i physically can't be stressed out about it which is like kind of nice but also kind of horrifying because there's this miserable cognitive dissonance that almost can be equated to the i want to scream but i have no mouth kind of thing i'm just like are we on the matrix like what happened have you not read that book no i have no idea what you're there's about. oh my god there's a horrifying short story about like robots and computers that take over the world and at the end of it, they turn these humans that are trying to kill them into like these grotesque creatures. And one of them is, I want to scream, but I have no mouth. And it's just like this mouthless creature who's in perpetual agony because he's an abomination to nature and the Lord. Those, those are the things that Amanda reads. <laughs> and my mom's always like, honey, can you read something like happy and positive? And I'm like, I do. But, I mean, I also read, like, Parable of the Sower for a podcast, so I don't know what you want me to do here. Right. Oh, side note. Uh, so, you know my plague doctor, Giovanni, right? Yes. So, my aunts both wanted one, and both of theirs arrived. So, now all three of us have plague doctors. For those of you who may not remember from our previous episode, these are stuffed toy plague doctors, and they're super yeah. cute. I have not, like, in- I have not enslaved a human person. I am not Catherine de' Medici. Like you just go to like the absolute top of it. Whomst else? There's no why. Yeah, whomst else? Because I'm still thinking about Catherine de Medici when she enslaved that uh, person with uh, with hypertrichosis and said we're gonna make you fuck and have monster children, which is in an earlier episode of the pod. Uncomfortable side conversations. Catherine de Medici is always an uncomfortable side conversation. Yes. Um, so what are you drinking, if anything? So I'm drinking out of my unfortunately required reading cup because I feel like I have to tell everybody that when they can't see it. Um, it currently has vodka and Diet Coke in it. Do we have the same kind of straws? Metal, like, hyper-colorized? Yeah. yeah. So we have the same kind of metallic straws because we're both bad bitches. Um, I have a mug that is filled with Hendrix Midsummer Solstice Gin, Trader Joe's Lemonade, and Ginger Ale. 
Hold on. Delightful. God's love is real. God's love is real and it's good. Um, God, Hendrix makes some fine gin. Not yet a sponsor. I mean, they should be. If you ever want to sponsor us, Hendrix, I will do anything. <laughs> is this like your love for Pedro Pascal? I am thirsty for a lot of things. Pedro Pascal and Hendrix Gin being two of them. All right. Short story long. Yep. So this is a long one, guys. So Parable of the Sower yep. is divided into four separate years, 2024 mm-hmm. through 2027. Mm-hmm. The story follows Lauren Olamina growing up in a gated community called Robledo, which frankly is just a neighborhood with a wall around it in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. The people inside are poor, but not as poor as the people outside the walls who are homeless, struggling for survival, and often naked and raped and often insane as well. Um, Lauren has hyperempathy syndrome, which means she feels others' pain and pleasure. Supposedly, she got this because her mom used drugs when she was pregnant. It's a specific kind of drug. Hyperempathy syndrome makes sex great, but anybody else's pain, absolutely terrible. It makes her vulnerable and also makes her have more compassion than most. She starts writing in a journal to help make sense of the world that's falling apart around her. In 2024, she is baptized by her father, who is a Baptist minister, but she doesn't believe in Christianity at all. She is more interested in Alicia Leal, who is an astronaut who has recently died on Mars. One of her neighbors, a super holier-than-thou woman named Mrs. Sims, commits suicide, and no one finds her body for several days. So that's very, that affects her pretty greatly. In 2025, things have gone even more off the rails. A three-year-old named Amy Dunn accidentally starts a fire while she's being ignored by her parents. She dies shortly thereafter when a stray bullet goes through the gate and strikes her. She and her family practice shooting and try to ensure that they're good with a gun in case robbers come over the wall or break into the community. Lauren is not convinced that any of these methods will save them if someone actually comes over the wall. She talks about this to her best friend, Joanne, and she starts saying, hey, we should work on survival skills, but Joanne freaks out and just tells her parents instead, which gets everybody in trouble. Thieves start breaking into the neighborhood, just like Lauren expected. Lauren writes versions of poetry and comes up with her own religion, which she calls Earthseed. She wants to spread her gospel. Her brother Keith sneaks out, loses the gate to the, or the key gate. Her, he keeps sneaking out of the house and he's freaking out their entire family. Sometimes he brings Lauren's stepmother money, but things aren't looking good because it's pretty clear he's doing something shady. In 2026, Keith is still living on the outside of everything. Lauren has figured out that he's living a life of crime, but he swears that he's just teaching people how to read and uh, helping a gang of criminals because they, they can't read the things that they have stolen. Pretty soon, Keith kicks it and his parents have to go downtown to identify his body. There are more and more break-ins as thieves sneak in and rob the neighborhood, taking people's like only last remaining money, food, that kind of thing. Lauren can see Robledo is going down fast. Thieves still get in, even with nightly watches from everybody. Joanne's family leaves to, or leaves to the town of Olivar, or wants to leave to the town of Olivar, but it looks like it's more of a, a, a form of debt slavery. So they take off since Joanne's family is gone. Lauren thinks about what she's going to do when she turns 18, which includes sharing her religion with the world. And then her father goes missing when he's coming home from work and everything starts falling apart. It is now 2027, not 2021, according to my documentation. (laughs) I don't want to think about that. I saw a video earlier today where my sister sent me a TikTok. Somebody wrote 2021 and then circled it with salt while playing carry on my wayward son. 
Yeah, that sounds... All supernatural. It's like, yes, yes, please protect the sweet baby angel. Yep. Anyway, 2027, Ribladeo was destroyed. No one, no one expected that, evidently. Lauren mm-hmm. loses her family and her boyfriend. She runs away from him. Lauren failed and takes two other people along with her, Harry and Zara. They are now refugees moving north in California. Mm-hmm. Zara asked Lauren to teach her how to read. Zara was a slave who was purchased by a family in Robledo. There's a lot of people who are purchased slaves and wives and that kind of thing because their family sells them because, well, no one has any money. They travel through a pretty destroyed California, going into towns only to buy water and items that they need because towns are controlled by gangs. They come across mm-hmm. packs of scavengers and avoid areas with fires as there are serious opportunities to get killed. And a lot of times these scavengers go into the fire areas to take whatever's left. Mm-hmm. Harry and Zara start up with each other sexually. And Lauren is like, hey, use a condom or everything is going to be destroyed in your life. While on the road, the three break up a robbery attempt of a man, a woman, and their baby, who they had a baby while they were out there. That's her point. These are Travis, Natividad, and their baby, Dominic. Lauren talks about her Earthseed stuff. Travis is skeptical because Lauren's version of heaven is traveling amongst the stars. And he doesn't understand how if they're trying to survive, they're ever going to get to space. There is a really bad earthquake, which happens in California, and things start to go down. They meet a 57-year-old black man named Ben Cole, who used to be a doctor, which we find out later. Lauren and Ben Cole strike up a friendship. They approach a house and find two women who are trapped in the rubble from the earthquake. These are the sisters, Allie and Jill. They are immediately attacked by four men, and they all fight them off. We find out that these two sisters were regularly sold as prostitutes by their dad and abused. Lauren has caught serious feelings for Bancole and writes in her journal that she needs to approach him with caution because, you know, she can't use these feelings or things will both be bad. Bancole finds a three-year-old baby, Justin, who ends up joining them. Jill and Allie get really close to baby Justin as Allie had a baby, but her father killed it back in the prostitution days. Bancole and Lauren kiss before watch that night. On a rest day, Bancole and Lauren discuss Earthseed and they end up having sex all day but safely with condoms. There's like a whole scene where they both like break out their condoms, which is like, oh, practicing safe sex at the end of the world. As they walk up the I-5 freeway going north, Bancoli admits that he has a great amount of land that he bought when he was younger and couldn't end up selling. His sister, her husband, and their three kids live up there. He's moving up that way. He offers Lauren and her group a place there and agrees that she can share earth seed there. He asks her to marry him. She admits to him that she has hyper-empathy syndrome. He's surprised, but says he can handle it. Overnight, two additional people sneak into camp. This is Emery and her daughter, Tori, which, aw, I'm just kidding. Jill, who <laughs> was on watch, gets a crap load for letting people into the camp at night. They had been enslaved, these two had been enslaved to work in a camp, and after her husband died, the law said they had to work off his debts. A few days later, someone from the camp, from with a very similar type of situation, Grace and Mora and his daughter Doe join the group, but they are very off to the side. They like don't want to be part of it. While traveling, the group is attacked. Jill is killed while trying to protect baby Tori. Lauren goes down because of hyper empathy. And after the fight, they realize that Emery, Grayson, and the two kids are all hyper empathetic as well, because evidently bad bosses prefer the hyper empathetic because they can control them. They arrive at Ben Cole's property, but find only skulls, which they assume are the members of the family. He tries to go through local police, but all they do is take some of his money. The groups begin to set up property and say goodbye to the dead with everyone having an opportunity to say something at the beginning of the first 
This was depressing as fuck. I don't know if it was depressing or disassociation, but <laughs> maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's clinical depression. Um, <laughs> it just felt... You know when books don't feel like they're supposed to be fiction? Yeah. There's a line in here where normal, I wonder what that is. And it was just like, the, I was reading this when we were going through the whole thing about, was it Biden? Was it Trump? Was it Biden? Was it Trump? And I'm sitting there mm -hmm. going, this constant anxiety mm -hmm. normal I wonder what that is and I'm, mm -hmm. I read that line and I'm just like dang it really I was a uh, I, I watched Crash Course to help me uh, think about the things that I'm too dumb to think about so thank you John Green but uh, he records the episode about this in 2017 and his level of anxiety in 2017 is like oh you sweet baby angel if only you knew if only <laughs> like it's it's so weird how so i've been watching a lot of music videos because youtube music has taken over my life even though i desperately miss a uh, google music player uh, so i've been watching a lot of like music videos from like the 2010s and just the radical difference in tone and what was acceptable it feels like I might as well be watching something from like the 50s. Like there's a music video in which If Taken is Writ is done by David Guetta. And, and this is probably a deeper analysis of a David Guetta music video that ever needs to exist. But through the power of his music, he reforms Pangea. Like all of the continents shift back together. And then all the people rush to this one mega continent, Pangea. So I'm assuming that David Guetta's also solved border crises. I'm assuming there's no plate tectonic issues and no one died in the literal shifting of literal continents. Um, and Usher's there for some reason in the mm -hmm. middle of this Pangea. I feel like Usher's just there always for some reason. Right, but it's like, to, to take this as writ, David Guetta's music reformed the shape of the planet and everyone got to dance together on a new mega beach and i'm just blown away by this idea because i have not been in a room with more than like 10 people in a very long time yet alone also in that video he has like a rave set in the u.s at 207 p.m what fucking beach rave is happening at 207 p.m please what I think is fascinating, too, is if you watched a lot of music videos from, like, the year 2000, after we got over Y2K and all that yes. stuff, um, all of a sudden there was just these, like, series of, like, super excited things, like, we're in the year 2000, it's going to be great. And then you'll see as we keep moving forward, things mm -hmm. get darker and darker and darker and more depressing. We had these concepts of flying cars and stuff. This was way, obviously, in the 50s and 60s. And we had all these, these thoughts of like, hey, this is going to be amazing. We're now all these technologies. We're going to be, you know, eradicate disease and all this thing. And then all of a sudden it was like, you start to see our generation and our shows are like The Walking Dead and all these things where everything is destroyed forever. And then mm -hmm. we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're like, surprise. <laughs> like, yeah, I feel super bad for like boomers and stuff who grew up like the Jetsons. And by now we should have like flying cars and shit. And all we have are... um. I can use augmented reality to make a Pokemon appear in my living room. I can also order pizza in like two clicks. <laughs> I can do that. 
but like we've really been gypped as far as technology goes well we have a lot of technology that does like other things like the computer in our phones is smarter than the computer that sent the first man to the moon mm-hmm. and we use it to look at cat videos which zero judgment i like cats a lot even though i'm deathly allergic um but yeah reading over this just one it didn't really feel like fiction because all of this stuff just happened from the climate change to the strong arm president who's an idiot to the walls and the gentrification and the the wall will protect us but not really to the purge stuff to the racism to the it's like it just it's real like it's just so i will tell you right now not to give away what my day job does but i do work with a lot of people who live in gated communities Mm -hmm. and my favorite thing is when their gate goes down and breaks and they say well how are we going to keep the criminals out and you have to be like listen this gate doesn't protect you from anything Mm -hmm. all it does is give you a false sense of security Mm -hmm. what it does is it makes it more difficult for somebody to break in but they can still climb the fence Mm -hmm. they can still break into a pedestrian gate Mm-hmm. They can still climb the wall of your backyard mm-hmm. or follow someone in with their vehicle. Mm-hmm. Literally, you are not safe. You just have a false sense of security. And you I know think- what the term for that is? Mm-mm. What is it? Security theater. Uh, oh, yeah. Like like uh, TSA? Yeah. It's yeah. just security theater. I will say, though. Um, so like, why are you patting down my braid? There's nothing in there. It's just hair. Right, like why are you like you're spending a lot of time on the underwire in my bra? It's just fat, it's just fat and nipple. That's all, all it is. There's no bombs here. Um, but story that happened to me I was getting off the bus, and there was this guy who actually followed me off of my bus, off of my bus stop, and walked to my apartment gate that didn't open. This is at my old place, so the gate never closed. And he like got through like to the other side of the gate, and he's like, I think you're beautiful. And I was like, Did you follow me? Yeah, like he fully followed me. And I was actually upset for a minute that that gate didn't work because, yeah, like, I mean, he was following me on foot. He could have followed me back in, but, like, it just felt, like, too morally resonant that, like, he got that close and, one, didn't think that was a problem, but that's an issue with the patriarchy. And, two, that, like, realistically, I didn't have any way that I could have really defended myself. I got pepper spray right after that, though. Um, I think is really interesting in this book is that Lauren, obviously, is... A woman yes um, well she's a teenager when this starts yes but she is very aware of what is going on around her which i think is something that a lot of women can relate to which is mm-hmm. the i've got to figure out a way of protecting myself because mm-hmm. all of these people claim that they're going to protect me but none of them knows what the f they're doing mm-hmm. um the fact that she has so much vision as like a 15 year old to go hey, my dad has these books on how to make things out of acorns and how to scavenge and do this kind of stuff. I should mm-hmm. probably be reading these so I know what I'm doing. And the fact mm-hmm. that she tries to bring people in because her stepmom's a teacher, so she's she's used to this, like, let me educate, let me share what I know. Um, mm-hmm. And just the fact that people don't want to see the danger right in front of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that we... Or at least, you know, I think that women have this um, this tendency now, like there's this, this obviously huge interest in true crime. And I think part of that is 
to study what happened before, what not to do, but also at the same time to remind ourselves that there are people out there who constantly have bad thoughts about women mm-hmm. and how we have to protect ourselves. And the whole thing from like my favorite murder and stuff is like, fuck politeness. Like if somebody is definitely giving you bad feels and they're following you and doing shit like that, you owe them nothing. Like mm-hmm. get out. Like that's um, because at least I was always taught growing up, like, be very polite to everyone, be very polite to men, you know. I had a guy at a um, meeting, it was a, a like a sales meeting, tell my boss right in front of me, I like her, she shows cleavage, promote her. Lovely. I'm like, I'm a 40 double D, sir. I can't hide these things. They're not on display for you. I didn't say that because... I was being nice and polite. Yeah, it's it's so weird that that's been like a seismic shift. I don't get the luxury of really being not polite because I'm black and I will get I'll be told to tone it down. Um, so even in situations where I'm in danger, I still have to be polite because no one listens to black women anyways. I've always found that true crime for women is more like a justice porn scenario because only in a fictionalized New York are 100% of rapes believed and that bad guys actually get caught and face consequences. Right, especially because the majority of, I mean, rapes before and even now, obviously, very limited sentences. And the thing Mm -hmm. is, it escalates from there. That's the whole Brock Turner thing. I remember being just, oh, oh, like, oh, you poor baby angel. There's so many things that you can do with your life. I mean, you destroyed one girl's life. I was sitting there going, what what logical scenario? Is it okay for a man to horrifically rape a woman behind a dumpster and two people rescue her? But, oh, oh, you know, he's he's a swimming star. You know, he's going to do so many great things with his life. And we see that, you know, now is, we have the Me Too movement and stuff, so people are starting to come forward and be like, well, this person did the following 40 things, and y'all think he's amazing. And there's been a lot of people that people have come forward and said, like, hey, um, I know you really think this person was cool, but it's fascinating to me anyway. There's also an obscene amount of white privilege with that, because a black man oh, yeah. was shot in the alley like a dog, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not, to, not to be that person, but, like, I'm always fascinated by that kind of stuff because, and I think that's one of the reasons I love Parable the Sower so much is because it does confront this from the perspective of a woman of color because, yeah, like a lot of those things that we talk about with being feminist are still not afforded to black women. Like I could not be aggressive to a man who's trying to pursue, I'm using air quotes here. I'll still get told to tone it down Uh, professionally. You have no idea how many times I've been told that I'm intimidating for just existing. So there's a lot of things that are still not afforded to black women that um, inherently put us at a disadvantage, which is why it's so cool to see a black protagonist who is magical, but not flawless because I, I'm always a little bit tired of like the magical Negro narrative where here's this flawless person of color who's just here to assist white people. Um, So it's quite nice to one, not have the magical Negro narrative, and then two, two approaches from all the nerdy things that I liked a lot when I was younger, um, because I was told very frequently that, like, as a Black person, I'm not supposed to do stuff like this. 
like I'm not supposed to be nerdy or into science by society. My parents didn't give a fuck and a half. <laughs> my parents let me do whatever I want. God bless being born in the 90s and being an only child because my parents let me do anything. But um, yeah, this is this is a book. This is this is a book. And it's a lot. Uh, do you want to talk about some theme and some symbol in? Yeah, I'm going to read the parable of the sower from Matthew 13, because this gets referenced a couple times. So just so mm-hmm. y'all know the, the text of it. Um, and it's, it starts at three, uh, Matthew 13, 3 and goes through 9. Because, mm-hmm. uh, and this is a parable from Jesus. So a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell among the path and the birds came and ate it. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because there had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And you can kind of identify individual characters from that. Like, mm-hmm. Keitha fell on some rocky places where there wasn't much soil, grew up quickly because the sword was shallow, but then when things came out, like, at least that's kind of where I am. But there, yeah. there's um, a lot of biblical allegories and stuff like that. And that makes sense because Lauren's dad was a Baptist minister. Yeah, and so is the authors. So, uh, I, for one never really understood uh this parable as a child because i grew up with chia pets so growing things wasn't hard (laughs) just get a chia pet that would have made that would make everything so much easier i tried to grow potatoes in our backyard in texas that did not go well also um so there's a secret place where uh where we all share memes and I got to share a depiction of a biblically accurate angel. <laughs> and I'm just reminded of the fact that, one, the Bible's batshit insane. And I say that as someone who still puts Catholic on the census. One, the Bible's batshit insane. And two, um, you cannot interpret any of this stuff literally because it just makes no fucking sense. And you especially can't interpret it literally now because here's the cool thing about like urban living is when you see plants that refuse to die like sunflowers on the sides of highways plants are remarkably resilient and will grow anywhere so this whole idea of oh, they were so delicate and they were in bad soil nah ho there's a whole patch of blue bonnets that are entirely here just out of spite then there's other ones that like you go to plant them and they're just like nah i don't think i'm going to produce any fruit this year they're like but you're a peach tree that's all you do right nah, you get some weird weather i don't really feel like it so my favorite thing about trees that bear fruit is when you figure out that your tree is a hoe <laughs> go on because like sometimes you'll get like weird mutant fruits and it's like that's not what you are that's not you're not supposed to look like that what the fuck (laughs) is this an apple peach what is happening here right it's like when you find out that your tree's been hoeing it it's kind of cool 
So there is a lot of racism in this book, which makes sense because our and in the real world, a woman of color, yes, um, and, and in human existence right now. What I found really, really interesting about this was the fact that, like, her family obviously they're they're a black community, but there's also Latin people, Latin American people, and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, Latinx, we'll go with that. Um, and then uh, the, that word gets disputed. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what it is people of latin american descent that the united states came in and stole your land there here you go there perfect Um, because that describes everyone so there's a large community that they're talking about going to that used to be a bunch of rich white people which is what Mm -hmm. i'm fascinated by because the whole conversation is this company came in and said y'all aren't able to find any jobs you know that's that's a shame we're gonna buy your whole property okay and then we're going to give you jobs and you're going to be able to purchase things from our company store with what you get paid although you're only going to get paid items that are like company credit and that was a thing that actually happened all over Mm -hmm. the united states until there was a lot of legislation that came through it was like uh late 1700s early 1800s up up until probably right as we're getting to the civil war maybe later than that absolutely Um, because the guy who built afterglow vista did that yeah. And it was, it was a very common practice. So what the company would do and say, we're not going to pay you in cash. We're going to pay you in company script. Yeah. Here's company script. You're going to be able to go to our store, buy things from the store. But the thing was, anything that they imported from the store was more expensive. And that was intentional so that you couldn't go out and save money and then leave. They wanted to go ahead and enslave you in a certain way where, you know, they were still feeding you. And a lot of times they were giving you a place to stay, but there was no way for you to leave at all. Like, and in this particular book, they do something that's very interesting where there is legislation that is passed that allows the debt of the father to have to be paid off by the children. So we see that with one of the characters later on, um, Tori's mom, where they're like, hey, um, your husband died. That sucks. Anyhow, this is how much money you owe. You're gonna be here forever. Well, and that's legislation, like, it's, again, that's stuff that still exists to this day. Like, I remember after my mom died, there were plenty of bill collectors that continued to call, and I had to be like, she's literally dead, I don't know what you want. (laughs) She's literally dead, and you're not getting this money. (laughs) Um, It's odd that there's still this level of racism in existence, mostly because it is so illogical. Like I, I'm, I'm glad that I've reached that level when it comes to racism. Is that I've become entirely postmodern. Um, Jacques Derrida, you better be fucking proud of me. But it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense why there's still like so much racism in the world. It really like shouldn't be this hard. Like reading that book, Dark Archives. It's about like books found in humans. I want that book so badly. It is. It's amazing. I'm not gonna lie. Um, so there is a part where she's talking about Nazi Germany, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and book burning and that kind of stuff. And she talks about this one guy, I cannot remember the name of the institution. I just read this last night, so you think I'd remember, but, um, he had basically done all sorts of genetic testing and stuff like that. And he said, Jewish people aren't any different from us at all. He's Mangala? like, there, it was a Mangala. It was, it, oh. was a, it was a guy who actually was like, y'all are crazy this isn't another race these are human beings oh an anti-mingle and he's like they're 
almost identical to what you are. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously there's like different genetic disorders that affect different things, but it was one of those things where you're going, he goes, I don't understand why this is a problem. And obviously got kicked the fuck out of Germany and like his family was actually, he ended up killing himself. Oh, um, his wife was, his wife was Jewish and she killed herself. Like, I think I might be combining two stories, but it was one of those situations where he flat out said, y'all are bonkers. None of this stuff that you're spouting is accurate and you're burning the text that will prove it to you. Mm-hmm which we've seen over the past four years. Facts don't yeah. matter if it doesn't fit in your narrative. But um, we talked a little bit about gated communities and safety and safety uh, and security theater. Um, yeah, there is this huge association with gates equating to safety, especially in minority communities, because like that's sort of the lie that we've been taught by white capitalism is that gates will keep us safe. And actually, when you think about it, for a lot of people of minority status, those gates are a huge status symbol. Like, I moved to a different complex that has a gate that works. And that's how I felt like I moved up in the world. Like, that's how I felt like, okay, finally, like, I'm middle class and I'm doing it, was having a gate on my apartment complex that worked. And whenever that gate doesn't work, I'm bitterly angry about it. Not enough to like go call someone and like raise a fuss, but like I'm upset about it because at the end of the day, the lie that white capitalism has taught us is that that's still a status symbol. I feel like I become like increasingly more like black rad femme every episode. (laughs) I feel like you're actually just expressing things that are actually happening though true it's like i think amanda's just right (laughs) but yeah like that's the lie that white capitalism taught us is that gates are here to keep us safe that's why we're building a wall which actually there's a great video that i saw on twitter today of uh people building trump's wall and then someone literally climbing over and running into the desert to the america side Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah that's that's what walls do walls create uh the need for higher ladders that's really all that they do but since antiquity, we have associated walls and gates with safety. And it worked great in antiquity um, if you ignore things like disease. And then you get like the Battle of Silesia, where Julius Caesar against Vercingetorix used the walls uh, against the people there and made everyone die because he created like two barriers around a walled city. I know too much about this. I love that some of the Celts, what they would do is they would build these structures that were out like in the lake or or water and it would have a bridge and people would go there and then they would destroy the bridge if somebody was trying to come out there and it was like, ha ha, try ride your horses through here, bitch. Like, I don't know though. Keep in mind, the picks and the woads were so frustrating that Rome was like, we're going to build a wall, okay? Mm-hmm. We're done. And then all Roman soldiers did was draw dicks on it. So, okay. So, related but unrelated, there was a Monstrum episode, not yet a sponsor, but Monstrum, we love you, on the Knuckle of E, that horrible uh, Scottish monster. No, I have to look it up. I don't, I've, I'm not familiar. It's a flesh horse. <laughs> oh, Okay. It's the terrifying flesh horse. And they said that the Nukalevi can't cross fresh water 
So like one dude's escaping it and it just goes over like he just goes over like a little stream and it's like you are a literal flesh monster with a human torso attached. But sure, like this little bit of fresh water is gonna fuck with you. Like I just thought that was like the dumbest, coolest thing. Well, that's actually very common in demonology and, and folklore that way. And um, they mentioned that, but I just from like a dumb this isn't my culture perspective. It's hard to imagine that this terrifying flesh horse, that like a spritz of tap water is all you need. Get away. So I've actually spent way too much time during this pandemic researching folklore. It's like my my jam right now. Um, And I love it. And I wish I could afford to go back to study it. But um, it is, it has become all Russian folklore, all Irish and Scottish folklore all the Mm -hmm. time. Um, some Scandinavian, um, we brought out our little Tomka dolls for, for Christmas. Um, I will be making put, or porridge for them at some point in time. I, uh, threw little, the little centers out of school bread the other day so that, because we don't have reindeer out here, but so that Doma boy could have it, which is I supposedly a little house demon. I yeah, hope I hope we don't have reindeers either. They would die. It is way too yeah. hot for reindeer. Yeah, they definitely... They definitely don't belong here. No. Yeah. Um, so gates and antiquity kept us safe. Uh, they don't really anymore because guns exist. You can shoot through a gate pretty easy. You can shoot through a lot of things real easy. <laughs> you can still throw fire over a gate. I mean, I, I don't really know anybody who actively has a, like, bow and arrow with like light on fire because you didn't say like molotov cocktail you just like throw fire like it's fucking avatar the last airbender where you're just yeeting a fireball across a gate listen i have dreams okay okay because you didn't specify like molotov cocktail or napalm or getting a flamenvifa which is my favorite word I wonder if sometimes people like just sit and listen to our podcast with like a dictionary or like Google search up the whole time and are like, what the hell did Amanda just say? <laughs> a flamenwerfer was uh, the number one model of flamethrower used by the Waffen SS during World War II. No me gusta. I need to do so much more research on like Stalingrad and stuff because I'm fascinated by it. But so you know how we always allude to that kid in class who knows too much about World War II and he's mm-hmm. usually like gross and creepy. That's usually me in most instances. <laughs> but because I mean, I'm not accurate, because I'm not a cishet white man, I get to like skate under the radar because I don't fit like the usual model of like neo-Nazi unsub. Well, you also tend to throw in facts about Austrian kings, too, so you break it up. Yeah, but, like, I'm 100% like that person in most scenarios who knows too much about World War II. But because I don't look like a Criminal Minds unsub, I usually just get to, like, skate under the radar, which is why I often have to say not a serial killer, because, yeah, like, I will... Like, I'm not, I'm not here to, to count yeah. bodies, thanks, though. Yeah, I'm not here to do that. You want to talk about empathy really briefly and why it sucks to feel about people? Oh, empathy is hard. Okay, so here's the thing. 
we can't tell you why you should care about people. We can't. No. There's not like really one of the best ways to learn empathy other than naturally being an empathetic person is reading. To read. It's to read other people's perspectives. It is to talk to people. It is to understand what they are going through by letting them talk and listening. Mm-hmm. And that is a skill that we have a very, very difficult time with because most of our stuff is online and we don't feel like we have to talk to people individually. Um, mm-hmm. In some cases, not all cases. We did well, get and I love that you preface it with talking with, but about people because I find that the more I read, the less I care about other people because most perspectives are inherently racist and misogynistic. Welcome to Amanda's Rad Femme Corner. Most of what is what is uh, published, yeah, yeah. Like um, most of what's published is inherently racist and misogynistic. So I don't empathize a lot of these. Like you're not going to ask me to build empathy for Ethan Frome. I don't have oh, any. No. Like I don't have any. I have an entire barrel of fucks, and none of them are for him. I feel like even talking to you, talking to my friends of color, talking to people who are more involved in the LGBT community, talking mm-hmm. even to um, my very conservative family. And letting them say their piece, which, and then hit them with a broom. We won't go into that, um, but and then hit them with a broom. It's understanding, like, okay, why are you scared of this? Why, why do you think that this is inherently evil? Why is this? And you, you do have to understand, you're not necessarily always going to be able to get through with your perspective. Um, there is some misogyny. There is some racism that is so deeply embedded that people don't even realize it's a problem. And I will say I grew up with a lot of internalized misogyny that I didn't realize was a thing because I mean, automatically when you're a teenager, you're like, I'm not like other girls. Um, Right. And then you read reviving Ophelia and you have a nervous breakdown and. (laughs) And then you start talking to other women and you're like, you're actually really cool. And you're not my enemy. And I don't want that dick. So don't worry. We're not. And like, and not everything is a posturing contest for like one dude's unwashed dick. I think that's fascinating is it's just this, our culture is so much like, oh, well, I'm going to fight you for so-and-so. And it's like, half the time you're sitting there going, he lives on the floor of a rented room where he rents a quarter of a living room from some dude and he sleeps on a twin mattress that's 15 years old and plays Right, guitar. you can have that's all it. four and a half inches of that unwashed cock. Knock yourself out. Like- I actually think it's interesting because then here's where I come at empathy and I, I do not mean this as a drag because it's going to sound like it's pointed and it's not. I am so tired of having to be like the black person that white people are using to understand racism. And I used air quotes there for, because we're not using this as a video where it's like, oh, I didn't know this was a problem until I met you. That's privilege. Mm-hmm. Like That is huge and, privilege. And that's not my job to teach you. Like, this isn't the Green Mile where I'm supposed to be here as your magical queer Negro to teach you how to care about other people. That's exactly. not my job. Um, <clears throat> I there said this to a friend of mine. plenty of books on the subject. Right. I told this to a friend of mine. It's like, it's not my job to rehabilitate broken white men. Because especially as a black woman who likes mostly dating white men, oh my god, the amount of, of amount of white men who are like, I've never dated a black girl before. It's like, we're not magic. We're not different. It doesn't matter. If you're worried about your mom being racist, I have a degree. She won't hate me. 
I had a, a friend, and I don't know if she listens to the podcast or not, but she was engaged to this this older white dude. And I remember she went home to meet his mom, and his mom was like, I just love Gone with the Wind, don't you? And she was just sitting there going, I would leave no! that house immediately. What? Why? I would leave I that house. Gone with the Wind. And why like, would you bring that up? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a thing too. And, 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 and I'm actually very grateful for the narrative that's come out now of it is not a black woman's job to educate you. Um, yes. Because I do think that there's a lot of times, I'm speaking as a white woman, a lot of times mm-hmm. we come forward and are like, I want to understand. Yes. But it's exhausting. It's exhausting for you. It's exhausting for women of color to have to come forward yeah. and be like, I have been trying to tell you this for 15 years. Right. We've been, we've been standing on the street corner saying this for like literally a hundred years. And now all the white women come out of the woodworks. Like explain to us Juneteenth. It's like, we tried and you didn't listen to us, but like now you care because someone fucking called you out. Like, it's like, wow, your actions have consequences. Gasp. So, like, it's weird that we're almost seeing a shift in tone that Black people are allowed to be angry, so now they're angry again. (laughs) And it's fascinating. I think I've said this before, like, the difference in conversation that I have with my Black friends versus the conversations I have with my white friends. And not in the sense that, like, you know, we talk shit behind y'all's backs because we don't. There's not, like, a secret like cabal of black people that are just shit talking even though that sounds phenomenal it's just this secret shady cabal of like older black women mostly who are just talking shit about everyone but just the level of conversation and one like having to explain such basic things like that black women feel pain that's something that still is a problem in medicine that black women don't feel pain the way white women do, that black women can be mentally ill and need to be treated for mental illness, that black women experience racism (laughs) and bless you and sexism and misogyny in ways that are different than black men, but are just as equally dangerous. Like having to explain things that are so mundane. Yes, it's exhausting. I, me personally, not speaking for every black person, am happy to do it for some people. Tori's on the approved list. Um, But not for everyone. There's plenty of people that I was like, well, how do you feel about this subject? I feel that you should leave me alone. Is that how I feel about this subject? Um, But yeah, it's weird kind of watching that pendulum shift because that, that empathy well kind of dried up because it has been a lot of black storytelling that has been ignored by white society and now suddenly because it's no longer in vogue to be actively racist now you want to listen to us and it's frankly exhausting and insulting radfem what's like i i am grateful okay the last four years have been awful yeah awful yeah Um, for some people they have been phenomenal um if you're a if you're a white supremacist um you just froze no come back come back all right why is it stopped i'm gonna stop recording for one second y'all while i get amanda back okay we're back the internet is now functioning again hooray 
I feel bad because we were in the middle of a really powerful discussion. Thanks, internet. That was fine. Breaks are good, though. Yeah, breaks are good. But yeah, like, empathy is exhausting. Human beings are exhausting. But uh, it is cool to see a Black character with hyper-empathy, though I'm not crazy about currently the perpetuation of the magical Negro, which is a trope that exists uh, because Black people are only tolerable to white people in fiction when they are subservient and serve a purpose narratively. As we see in things like The Green Mile. The Green Mile, uh, what was that one golfing movie? Uh, Legend of Bagger Vance? I think so. Out of the one with Will Smith? Yeah. Was it good? Yeah, Legend of Badger Vance. I was thinking Goodwill Hunting, but that was not the same movie. I was like, no, that's that's very different. I think Goodwill Hunting is the better movie. That's the you're the man now, dog. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I miss Robin Williams. I miss Robin Williams a lot. Let's see. What's next? Climate change. Oh, yeah. That, that actually that Chinese a, hoax. A huge portion of the United States does not believe that climate change is a thing. Even <laughs> as we have more hurricanes, even as polar ice caps melt, even as we have documented footage and information about emissions. But here we are. Yeah. It's a big portion of this book, which is interesting because it takes place about four years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, but where, you know, things are not growing as well. And if at all, there are <clears throat> major issues with coastlines eroding and things, water rising. Mm-hmm. Um, earthquakes, obviously, that's not something that really climate change affects. But... Mm-hmm. Rebuilding say, after an earthquake. earthquake you, yeah, I was gonna say rebuilding after an earthquake though, when you know you don't have a steady supply of of like wood and other items that you might use. Yes. Um, it's scary. a shocking amount of Americans don't believe in climate change, which is weird. Um, a lot of that also though is affected by one religion and two education. And I say that lovingly because shockingly in African American communities there's a lot of climate change denial just because they don't know better or understand um and i don't mean to say that like pejoratively like trust me on my other side of the family not all of us went to historically black colleges and have degrees um so while i come from a remarkable amount of privilege and education i am not far removed from people who have not had the same luxury um climate change is real um it has been a problem for many many years it got a lot worse. <laughs> um, and climate change is one of those existential threats that's so hard to deal with. Um, there's actually some cool articles on like Vice about like climate grief and stuff like that and why millennials are so nihilistic and like are not having children because we don't see a point. I mean, we also can't afford it. But like, there's just not, a, we don't see a point in existing on this planet anymore because and I don't mean to get into, like, magical minority talk, but I know a lot of people who feel like we don't deserve it. Like, we've squandered this gift that we were given, which sounds very pocahontas and I know that. But, like, we've squandered this beautiful opportunity that we've been given, and thus we don't deserve the opportunity to go do this thing. Like, I know, like, that's one of my personal reasons 
why I don't like the idea of terraforming other planets. It's like, we haven't earned that right. We don't get to, like, go fuck up, like, Mars. Well, I think a lot of the issue, too, is actively we are told as individuals that, you know, there are so many things that we can do and we have to be mindful of it. But then we have these massive corporations mm-hmm. that are polluting. And a lot of times in areas where there's not the kind of regulation where, mm-hmm. you know, like the G8 summit can actually do anything about. Mm-hmm. And when it comes down to it, they're more destructive than the individual using a straw. Now, obviously Absolutely. Amanda and I are on team metal straw as we talked about at the beginning of this. Um, but, but I there wasn't some- always... And there are some people that can't use it. And I get right. it. If you're, if you are a person who has to use a plastic straw, because that's the only way you can do it with your particular medication or mm-hmm. your setup, or, you know, you're in a particular wheelchair or situation. I get that. I am not mm-hmm. going to villainize you at all. Um, now there are obviously are little things that we can do here and there to help protect and recycle and that kind of thing. But ultimately it's going to be getting down to these giant organizations and getting them to stop destroying things but i also think it's important to mention the uh gentrification that comes with that because again like we're coming from a position of luxury that we can say those things like if you are living paycheck to paycheck in a food desert no you are not worried about recycling it's hard to worry about recycling like i just i think it's important to acknowledge at all points in time the amount of economic displacement and inequality that is at the heart of every single topic like this. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about, there's a great John Oliver video on floods and flood insurance. Uh, so go ahead and just pause this podcast and watch that. Um, that talks about things like Katrina and not being able to leave your home economically. One, being lied to by your government, too, and then rich white people that love to build beachfront property, knowing that they'll get bailed out by their insurance company, even though you built a house on the fucking beach, and now you're surprised it's gone. (laughs) I'm sorry, that upsets me so much. It's like, beachfront, no, beach on. There were a lot of people. There were a lot of people who could not leave New Orleans. Right. Physically could not leave New Orleans. Right. We're talking like did not have the money to leave. Like, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that's, you're right. It is such a position of privilege to be like, well, why didn't they just leave? And I've, yeah. I, I remember seeing being, that so much. And even just like being concerned about things like recycling, like when you're living paycheck to paycheck, I'm sorry, you're not worried about the planet. You're just not you're there's other things to like it's just such a position of privilege to be able to care about this stuff and i'm not saying it's not important because it is but you're right like so much of this stuff is not the individual's problem it is not my starbucks that caused a hole in the ozone layer it was not my hairspray in the 90s it isn't my individual ringlet from the soda cans it's not like that's not how any of this works and there's almost because i know at least for me i'm almost in like quiet climate nihilism where there's no point we're already fucked go set styrofoam on fire outside it's interesting too because this ties into travis's point when they're talking about earth seed and he's like i don't know how the hell we're gonna get to the stars because right now we are literally just trying not to get killed by scavengers right 
Like, I love that these are your perspectives. All of that is very nice. I would like not to die, please. I'm going to let you cover the topic of Afrofuturism. Because it's so good. And you just threw your hands up. Like, you're so excited. Afrofuturism is amazing. So basically, Afrofuturism sort of relates into sci-fi. And it's reimaginings of the future and fantastical and sci-fi elements through the lens of the Black experience. There is some really, really cool Afrofuturistic art and stuff out there pretty much any janelle monet album is afrofuturistic like afrofuturism is just super super cool there's also a lot of inherent uh talks about colonialism and racism that comes into sci-fi discussions shameless plug on my amazon wishlist i have a bunch of books about like uh post-colonial and colonial narratives and sci-fi uh racism and sci-fi and race politics and sci-fi because all of those things are influenced in fiction by what exists in real life. So Afrofuturism tries to imagine those narratives through the lens of African-Americans and the African-American diaspora and experience rather than the white cis het colonial post-colonial view. I just threw out like every term you need to survive I was gonna say that that feels like that feels like a good list right there. That feels like yeah, like I pretty much just like gave you every word you need to survive like modern intersectional conversation. You're welcome. But yeah, Afrofuturism is great. Like, go read some sci-fi written by Black folk. Read more Octavia Butler. She has more books. Oh my gosh. I will go in a little bit later into the sheer amount of awards and things that have been named after Octavia Butler. She sounds like she's so cool. I'm sad that she's dead. Me too. And she died so young. Yeah, she was only 58. Like Black people tend to, but we're not going to talk about that. So there's a big point in this book of what is God. Now, Lauren's perspective is that God is many things, but God is mostly change. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit about Earthseed in, in just a minute. I don't but want to talk about Earthseed. I was like, you put all the information there, friend. <laughs> um, I, I but, would be your proctor, your helicopter. But the whole, um, the whole book, this question comes up over and over again. Her perspective is very different from her father's perspective, which is very different from Corey's perspective, which is very different from every member of her family and everybody in the community, everybody has a different idea of what God is. Mm -hmm. For her, the only thing that she sees over and over again is change. So Mm -hmm. for her, God is change. Yeah. And that's interesting. And I, I open this to the floor to other uh, members of the African diaspora. Um, how much your opinion of god has changed just from like generational because like i know my opinion in relationship with god is radically different than my aunts and it's hilarious to listen to us like lovingly argue about theology because it's not that either side is uneducated like we're all fairly educated in our scripture and in our religion which is roman catholicism um and in other scriptures as well like we aren't close-minded with that um, but my personal tenets and beliefs are so different than my aunt's. And, like, not on the big stuff. Like, we all agree that, like, homophobia, homophobia is bad and, like, 
being pro-choice is important even though we're roman catholic like we can all agree on that but like just little things about dogma and faith is a big thing faith is the big one where you know my aunts are you know pray and put put it up to the lord and it's like the lord also gave me clinical depression so like what the fuck man <laughs> like what the, what the what the fuck man like they're okay if you want to ever talk about having a battle about what god is talk to anyone who's lost a parent young in a religious household because there is nothing that will make you turn on god like being told constantly that uh your dead parent losing them was a part of god's plan we are as a culture terrible i I mean as american culture are terrible about saying things that when people die they're in a better place this is all part of god's plan it's my not for us to favorite. understand. My absolute favorite was God will never put more on your plate than you can handle. <laughs> and keep in mind, I was 12 when my dad died. I was literally 12. I was an actual child. And it's like, God never gives me more than you can handle. It's like, I'm 12. I can't handle anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I... I was just smart enough to know that it was bullshit. <laughs> but it's like, God never gives you more than you can handle. It's like, I can't handle anything. I don't know what you're talking about. You're like, like there's, you. there's nothing that I can handle. Or, yeah, like, God's in a better, like, you know, God took him home. He's in a better place. It's like, are you insinuating that our home was bad? Is that what you're saying? Because by the logic of your statement, what you're implying is that our home was bad and you're saying that to the child of the man who died don't do that don't do that just say this sucks i'm sorry here's a hug right here's a hug and here's a hundred dollars that's all that's all i wanted i brought you food i know you don't want to eat it right now put it in the fridge and in two months take it out set the oven to 350 and put it in for 20 minutes. Okay, love exactly. you, Exactly. Like, you know what? I think the best thing that happened after my mom died was someone, like, delivered us a peach cobbler. And that was all we needed was a hotel tray of peach cobbler. I mean, that's the hard thing, too, is you either want to eat everything or you don't want to eat anything. This is true. The peach cobbler was great, um, even though it did feel like that boondock skit of a black person dies of diabetes and then you promptly go and eat the thing that gave that person diabetes type 2 diabetes gotta specify okay i'm just saying because people villainize type 1 because they think that like a five-year-old ate a bunch of sugar and it's like no literally their body attacked their pancreas and killed it i do kind of like that narrative though i know it's not true but i do kind of love the idea what of a five-year-old drinking like 15 two-liter bottles of coke and just being like like, come witness me like right like a toddler just like just like snorting actual sugar until their fucking like just entire body systems fail oh my god um okay so do we want to talk about our seed i guess i guess we do because there are more books in this series but we're only going to focus on this one yeah, we don't have time for the other books. So Earthseed is the religion that uh, Lauren comes up with. Basically, 
the main tenets are that God is change and God is chaos and God is sort of unknowable but also duplicitous and dual. It's actually a really, really cool religion that I think I'm too tipsy to care about. Um, <laughs> honesty. But it is a fascinating idea to look at God from a dualistic perspective because I think a lot of people only focus on either the entirely benevolent God or the entirely malevolent God. No one really focuses on the double nature. Um, I like that because it aligns more with my personal beliefs, which are deism, which is God exists, he created the world, and then he set everything in motion and walked away. Because I have a very difficult time rationalizing a God who cares and loves about humanity and lets, like, Hitler happen. You know, just saying. I didn't know if that was a part of God's plan. If it is, it's a horrible plan. It's a very, very bad plan. It's uh, a whole thing from Good Omens. It's ineffable. If you say ineffable one more time. <laughs> right. So I like that it branches in, actually, with a lot of other myths and mythologies. Um, insert reference to Crash Course Mythology which actually talks about a lot of African myths, which this is briefly inspired from. Also how um, Lauren gets her middle name. Thank you, John Green. But Earthseed is fascinating. There is a lot more of it in the book that is mentioned and in other books that Octavia uh, Butler has written because I think it's something that's kind of been like mulling in her for a while. It feels like it's one of those things that like it's been mulling in her also that it's seen almost like as an act of rebellion against specifically Baptist religion. And uh, as someone who was raised by a Baptist slash Christian fundamentalist dad and a Roman Catholic mom, which just sounds like a recipe that gets you exactly one queer deviant child. Don't ask a lie. Uh, Southern Baptists are intense in a way that uh, is difficult to describe. And I think it would be very, very comforting and nice to create a religion that is less focused on certainty. Because Southern Baptists certainly do have an answer to everything. And it's usually deeply unsatisfying. I'm just saying, like, from, from a personal perspective... Uh, God being the answer to everything is deeply unsatisfying and sometimes traumatic. Like when you ask about why your parents were taken from this mortal coil. God. Okay, well, fuck you too. There used to be a joke about... So one of my sister's friends joked that when he was doing like... Whatever, Sunday school... Like, the answer to everything was Jesus, so it was like, what color is the sky? Jesus. Um, no, the sky is still blue. So that was that was a whole thing. Thanks, Lutherans. I love Lutherans. Anyway. Can, um, for, for our listeners at home, uh, I used to teach Sunday school. Amanda did. Amanda used to teach Sunday school. And I was good at it. But uh, there is a cool central paradox to Earthseed. Uh, which is wh why is the universe to shape God? Why is God to shape the universe? So you're starting to see more of those sci-fi elements again. Um, I really like Earthseed as a religion because it is very cosmic in a way. 
um i'm also one of those like weird hippie religious people that like finds a shocking amount of like validity of air quotes faith and like science and in technology because like the universe is random and capricious but like only so much space is fucking weird oh yeah it we rains, understand so little of it it rains liquid diamond on uranus like space is so fucking weird um and just the fact that like you couldn't it just doesn't feel like you could do this randomly it's why i love um if you ever want to learn something that is so interesting about roman catholics is go to the vatican's website and look at the vatican observatory because some of the best like space scientists are from the vatican really yeah they're just doing it the vatican observatory is doing shit they're just out there looking at the stars because they're scientists like they're actual like space scientists they just also happen to be priests so yeah the vatican observatory me pimping out the catholic church again you got to do something for me what i think is interesting too is we currently have this whole narrative about how you know, if you're a scientist, you're not religious. But that mm-hmm. wasn't the case for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. And it's like you can embrace both. You absolutely can. And it's so weird that we see those things as antithetical to each other and they weren't. And realistically, they still shouldn't be. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like weird space magic and prehistory that's fascinating. But yeah, the Vatican Observatory. Very, very chill. Just should, we ta- sorry, should we talk about Octavia Butler? Yeah, let's talk about Octavia Butler. Really, really chill, cool woman. So she was actually born in Pasadena, California. Shout out. Mm-hmm. In June 22nd, 1947. Her mom was a housemaid. Her dad was a shoeshine man. Her dad died when she was seven. So you know all of that kind of life. Um, she was raised by her mom and grandma in what she referred to as a very Baptist environment. Mm-hmm. Pasadena was an interracial mix of people, but Butler saw firsthand how white people treated her mother poorly when she cleaned their homes and obviously did not like that. Mm-hmm. She was very shy, spent a lot of time in the library, which we see with a lot of authors I've noticed over the, over our yeah. two also, years Also, a lot of Amanda, because hashtag same. So her shyness made it really hard for her to be social with other kids. So she was awkward. She had dyslexia and it made school really, really hard, which a living hell, let's be real. Um, Accurate. She found a lot of her relief in reading sci-fi from magazines. And there were a lot when she was growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, When she was a kid, she said uh, she saw a movie called Devil Girl from Mars. And she was like, I could write a better story than that. And her family was like, honey, black women can't be writers. So mm-hmm. she became a writer. She worked a ton of odd jobs. She would get up at mm-hmm. 2 a.m. before these terrible jobs so that she could write. Mm-hmm. Um, she got her first Remington typewriter when she was 10 years old after begging mm-hmm. and begging and begging. And she ended up being able to support herself with her writing when she was in her 30s, which is a huge feat for any author. Um, Yet alone a woman of now. color. Yeah. Also, fun fact, one of her odd jobs was potato chip inspector. Yeah. So thank you, John Green. Uh, she graduated from John Muir High School in 1965, immediately went to work, and then she attended Pasadena City College at night. 
She ended mm-hmm. up winning a college-wide story contest and earned her first $15 as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, she started getting a, <clears throat> a bunch of ideas for her book, Kindred, and one of her classmates started talking to her about, her Black classmates started talking to her about criticism of previous generations for being subservient to whites instead of standing up for themselves. And she ended up thinking a lot about this and the concepts of survival and that kind of thing while she was in college. Mm-hmm. She graduated Pasadena City College in 1968, went on to UCLA before transferring to an extension of the school to take additional classes for writing. And she entered the open door workshop for the Writers Guild of America and blew away the leader of the group, which was Harlan Ellison, who's one of her teachers. Like Mm -hmm. her writing was that good. The Harlan Ellison was like, damn girl. Um, So he's like, you absolutely have to attend the Clarion workshop. And that's when things started to kind of move in and she ended up getting published and then published more and more. and then she ended up winning a ton of awards. So this is just a um, not completely, not complete list, but she won the Creative Arts Award for LA's YWCA, the Hugo Award for Best Short Story for Speech Sounds, Nebula Award for Best Novelette Bloodchild, Locus Award for Best Novelette Bloodchild, the Hugo Award for Best Novelette for Bloodchild, the Science mm-hmm. Fiction Chronicle Award for Best Novelette for Bloodchild. Science Fiction Chronicle Award for the Best Novel at the Evening, in the Morning, and Night, John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, which is a huge deal, mm-hmm. um, Notable Book for Bloodchild, uh, Publishers Weekly's Best Books from 1998 for Parable of the Talents, James Dip- Tiptree Jr. Award Honor List for Parable of the Talents, Los Angeles Times Best Seller for Parable of the Talents, Nebula Award Best Novel for Parable of the Talents, Arthur C. Clarke Award for Parable of the Talents, Lifetime Achievement Award in Writing from Penn American Center, Langston Hughes Medal of the City College, and then she was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 2010, and it got a Solstice Award in 2012. She's had an asteroid named after her. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the Octavia Lab in the LA Public Library System, and even a mountain on Pluto's moon Charon, or Charon, is named for her. She ended up, though, passing away at 58 from a stroke in 2006, which is yeah. so unfair. So it is unfair. really unfair. It's super unfair. Um, but yeah, like, it was weird reading her biography because outside of the shyness, I kind of related to that of kind of being told like, hey, you can't be a writer. Fun fact, I, when I was getting my wisdom teeth pulled, I got that done in high school. And I don't remember a lot about getting my wisdom teeth pulled except for as I was waiting for the anesthesia the uh the oral surgeon was like you know what do you want to be when you grow up and i said i want to be a writer he said uh oh that's cute and i remember glaring at him until i lost consciousness which if you need to understand amanda in a nutshell that's it like i just remember glaring at him intently until like the anesthesia took me yeah, like I really related to a lot of her background from like losing dad early to like looking at things and like I can do this better because as many of you know by now I'm a fan fiction writer and fundamentally that's why I write fan fiction is looking at a lot of these narratives and being like fuck you I can do this better which is not as hubristic as it sounds it usually sounds really hubristic but I don't think it is I think we come from a place where we see something a lot of times and go hey i can do that let's do it this way instead well and it's also usually approaching it so at least for me as a black person when i say i can do this better it's i can do this in a more 
human and diverse way, then like I can physically write this better. Like I can tell the narrative of a black person better than you, Joe Rowling, because I'm not a white turf. Had to throw one in there. I was like, she's listening. So, question Did you have to read this in school? I did not, which is greatly disappointing because I think this is one of those books that would make people hate books less. And I didn't have to read it either. And we had a conversation, like a side conversation before, where I feel like this would be a better book to read now than like George Orwell's 1984. Absolutely. Like this or Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, I feel like this is definitely one of those books where it's like, here's a more modern perspective Mm -hmm. that I think modern readers could grasp onto a little bit easier. And it's also a whole lot less misogynistic. Yeah. You know, women are that out there. Women are just in the the narrative to for them to have sex with and then be, you know, exposed by. Or or duplicitous harpies. I will say the one thing that freaked me out about this book is Ben Coley was like fifty seven and she was eighteen and I was like, No, thank you. No, 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 no. Yeah, that is one part that didn't age well, but you know I always have a weird feeling with stuff like that because one, I'm always aware of the inherent power dynamics of a partner that's that much older than their other partner. But also, like, if a woman knows what she's doing, then in my personal definition of feminism, that's never been an issue. Like, I've never really had, like, I've really had to come to terms with my inherent misogyny in disliking sugar babies or, like, grave digging women who, like, marry 90-year-old, like, oil magnates. It's like, but if in theory you know what you're doing, inherent power dynamic aside, you know what you're doing. You signed up for this. This still gives me the big creepies. But I, mean, it, I had to, I, I'm every day actively trying to not let it give me the big creepies because it does feel a little bit misogynistic to judge women in that kind of position. Now, again, like, if it's, like, an arranged marriage kind of situation or you aren't aware of that, like, you know, he was catfishing you or something, well, then, yeah, like, gross and weird and be angry. But if you've willingly signed up for this, inherent, you know, difference in power dynamic aside, girl, get that head, get that bread, and leave. What? I feel like that needs to be on a shirt. It's actually, like, a really, really popular, like, song lyric. Oh, okay. I've never heard it before. <laughs> I'm on TikTok a lot, so. So, we have a fun announcement for next time. We do. We are reading we A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle next, but with mm-hmm. special added guest. I also love how you glossed over you not being able to say the word special for a minute. Oh, yeah, this is fun. See, here's the whole thing is I've had vodka and Diet Coke today, and that's all I've had today. I stumbled over homophobia, so in all fairness, we're both fine. Um, yeah, we have a special guest with us, uh, our Baron Von Plate, who is, uh, full disclosure, beneficiary and supporter of the podcast. Um, that is not why he is on the show. We're going to go ahead and cover that now before we get angry emails. But, um, you know, more like a, a mutual present to all of us during a particularly trying and taxing time. Yes. Um, I'm 
I, I, I cannot in good faith say I'm looking forward to rereading this book. <laughs> but, you know, this is where we are. I've already started it on um, audiobook just because I was like, I listened to Parable of the Sower and then a book called Dear White Christians. And then I was like, okay, here's the thing. I need something that I don't have to think about. Put it on! Put it on! Yeah, I'll probably, I will probably start it today when I've had some crackers and I'm less gin drunk. Sunday gin drunk. But um, yeah, that'll be a good episode. Also, we need to mention that this episode is recorded late uh, because it's supposed to be a celebration of our anniversary. So happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Uh, we did not get to celebrate our anniversary because it was election day. <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was rough. It was real. It was real rough. So we did not get to celebrate our anniversary properly. Uh, so I'll probably throw in a gift when we go exchange Christmas slash birthday slash anniversary gifts at the end of the year. Uh, but happy anniversary, Tori. Happy anniversary, Amanda. Uh, how many years has it been? Has been? Or is this our two? second year? It's our second two? year. I don't. We've been married for two years, and I already don't remember how long it's been. Oh. Don't feel bad. In my actual marriage, I have to sit there and go. I've had to do that a few times with people where it's like, how old are you? Or I do the narcissistic thing of I know based on like how old I am in relation. Like I only know how old my younger cousin is because I know that I'm 12 years older than him. But like I could not tell you his age organically. It's just like I know it's my age minus 12. But um, thank you to our dear listeners and to our sponsors and patrons who allow us to continue to metaphorically and physically keep the lights on. Uh, this was a project that we started, I think, mostly out of uh, alcoholism and spite. Like, <laughs> Sounds about right. And uh, it has continued to flourish and blossom into ways that I did not think was possible. And frankly, if it was not for your support as listeners and as supporters and for Tori's uh, dogged determination to maintain this podcast. I'm not quite sure uh, where we would be, but 2020 has been particularly taxing for many of us, and we certainly hope that this show has been a uh, continued balm during a difficult time. I love that it takes me like no time to go from drunk to eloquent and then back to drunk. I was like, oh, so sweet. And then I'm like, wait, wait, I'm seeing the water come out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have errands to run, so that means I'm gonna, you know, when like, you know, when snakes eat eggs out of nests. Yeah, I'm gonna do that to a sleeve of crackers. Oh my gosh, are you gonna unhinge your jaw, or are you gonna do it like a little bit slower? I don't know if I'm gonna have to unhinge my jaw, but it's not gonna be pretty. So I'm gonna do something that looks unspeakable to these crackers and i'm gonna sit on the sofa until i feel like i can operate a moving vehicle also fun fact and you will also get this as the one who takes medication you know how they say like you're not supposed to operate large vehicles is that what yours says mine's yeah. just like just don't drink with it which obviously okay rude so mine says you're not supposed to operate large vehicles and for whatever reason, and I saw this on TikTok, and I'm so glad that someone addressed this, it always feels like what they mean is, like, forklifts and stuff. And it's like, oh, you mean I'm not supposed to drive? Fuck that. <laughs> there, I remember when I it broke my ankle 
Mm-hmm. Shameless plug doing roller derby. Um, and I had to take, I want to say it was like Percocet or something. Yeah. And I remember my boss, because we were friends, would pick me up from, for work and my mom would pick me up after work. And I just remember being like, this is pathetic and sad because I have to take this medicine. And now I'm like, <laughs> but I'm not going anywhere today. So yeah i mean i have time before i can run my errands so i definitely have time to like sit and sober up but it's like i always love that idea because i've thought about that since i was younger it's like do not operate heavy machinery and it's like i'm not gonna drive a forklift and it's like oh you mean i should be careful driving cars i've never thought of it that just because you know what got me thinking about it was the medication lunesta oh yeah that sleeping i mean i never took it but like that lunesta for our listeners outside of the united states Lunesta is a sleeping medication that had very, very soothing ads with horrifying implications where a giant Luna moth would enter your home and I'm presuming murder you because you'd fall asleep. <laughs> like the moth comes in and it's like everyone goes to bed. So I'm assuming this moth is some kind of incubus or serial killer. I've never thought of the Lunesta commercials like this before and now I'm terrified. <laughs> What else is, because, like, it's horror, because, like, it just floats through the house like a plague mist, and everyone's asleep, so I'm assuming this moth is a murderer, and it's a very, very large, glowing moth, um, <laughs> but at the end, it always says, do not operate heavy machinery, like, in exactly that, like, voice, and it's like, who the fuck is, like, what insomniac is driving a forklift? Well, I love how all of these commercials, too, are, like, the whole do not operate machinery may cause death, may cause anal leakage. And you're like, what? I think my favorite is a, do not take this medication if you are allergic. It's like, okay. Cool, I think how I do I find that. out? Like, as someone who has allergies to medication, it's like, you know what? Cool. I, if I'm allergic... Definitely not taking it. Apparently, you can still get Lunesta. I thought they took that medication off the market because I think people actually died. So, I will say I am allergic to Vicodin by the fact that it makes me crazy weepy depressed. And so, when I had my surgery this year, I had to be like, okay, I can't take Vicodin. And they were like, why? And I told them, and they were like, well, that's not really a side effect. And I'm like, yeah, it's a documented side effect. And they were like, oh, well, it wouldn't be that bad, but we'll give you this instead. Like they were really dismissive and I'm sitting there going, I have met multiple people who have had this kind of issue. Like, calm down, sir. See, I've never really had that problem because like my medical allergies are like bad and real. Like I have aspirin sensitive asthma. I have a latex allergy. And I have a penicillin allergy. Oh, Nikes. Yeah. So, like, no one's ever, like, downplayed my allergies with that stuff. They'll downplay, like, the other shit. But, like, my medical allergies, they don't really downplay. The human body is so weird. It is. It's really weird. And it's, like, there's so many ways that you can die or be killed. It's a miracle we live past childhood. It really is. Uh, especially with that Lunesta moth out there murdering people. Lying in your room, snatching your people up. 
Has someone caught that moth? Has has the Lunesta moth been been brought to justice? <laughs> this week on a special episode of My Favorite Murder. Someone needs to get that fucking Lunesta moth. You know, that'd be the greatest episode of BuzzFeed Unsolved. Oh my gosh. Who's stopping that Lunesta moth from just like I mean that moth has a body count. Like <laughs> It does. It's got a documented body count. That moth has just been murdering people for like years. All right. If you want to go on social media and tell us about your experiences with a murderous <laughs> Lunesta moth. You and your loved ones have been affected by the Lunesta moth. <laughs> we are all over social media. We're at unfortunately required reading on Facebook. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. RR on Twitter. Unfortunately mm-hmm. required on Instagram. Unfortunately required reading.com. Mm-hmm. And if you have a suggestion for the podcast, a funny story, or you just want to email us to like tell us about your Lunesta moth, we're at unfortunately required reading at gmail.com. And you just have one outside is just hanging out. You, who is captured the Lunesta moth? No one can see me flapping my hands like I'm a freaking moth, right? No one can see it. Uh, posting this on YouTube. I have no makeup on right now. I also have zero makeup on. Fun fact: I was talking to my aunts, and uh, I put on my azelaic acid, so my cheeks were a little bit red. I'm like you didn't have to put on makeup for us. It's like I didn't. And one of my aunts is like, Amanda has one of those pretty lights, and she means a ring light. And it's like I do have a, I do have a ring light. It's like Amanda got one of those pretty lights. It's like oh, that's so sweet. You're right, I did, but that's not why my cheeks are red. Um, if you would like to contribute to the cheese plate fund or to metaphorically and or physically keeping the lights on, you are welcome to sponsor us at anchor.fm slash unfortunately required reading or leave us a voicemail. We haven't received a voicemail in our two years, uh, mostly because I guess we're millennials and we're terrified of those things. That's fair. People call me and I'm like, okay, don't leave a voicemail. Don't leave a voicemail. And then they leave a voicemail. I'm like, who died? And it's usually um, the warranty for your vehicle. I'm like, I have ignored CVS so many times in favor of just like feverishly refreshing the app to see if my pills are ready. Um, Christmas quickly approaches. Uh, feel free to buy merch from our Redbubble. You can find Everything. a link to it on our website, which is unfortunately requirereading.com. Yeah. Um, this was fun. Was. There's apparently a dog rave going on outside. Oh, yeah. So, fun things. One, anytime somebody, like, we live right next to a fire station, and not to triangulate my position, but anytime a fire truck leaves, there is a whole symphony of dogs outside. Mm -hmm. Then add on to that the fact that one of my neighbors is doing construction, and then Mm -hmm. my other neighbor has picked up drumming, and you have this beautiful cacophony from this room, and I'm like, do I just do, like, that weird thing where you just cover it, like, in those bricks, those, like, sound bricks and then just be like i can do the charlie day thing and just put pictures up with push pins and like string try to explain yes. things to people can i tell you a secret about me before sure. we go fun fact i am afraid of large moths really they're too big like no the cecropia moth yeah oh the atlas the cecropia the luna they're too big i don't like large moths I like tiny moths. The rosy maple moth and the poodle moth, they can stay. But, like, if I saw a Cecropia, like, out in the wild, I'd probably shit myself. Do you know how bad I want fan art of a murder moth now? (laughs) Of a Lunesta murder serial killer moth. 
if any of you draw please we need fan art of the lunesta moth because like that that moth is a serial killer and it just went free all those years like there needs like we need to be like those people who say that they're there to help you like sue roundup for your cancer that you don't have like i want to be a victim advocate for those affected by the lunesta moth but just the icon of the moth not the actual drug we do not have any legal background sorry yeah we have no legal background to know what lunesta actually does but that moth is a killer but um thanks for listening everyone uh for the love of god and all things holy go read a book